Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand you remember as a child being resonant with you? Varnays and Topsiders. I was a kid that didn't have any money, and Varnays cost $55 and Topsiders cost $33. And I remember when I got my first job as a box boy at San Vicente Foods, where I joined my first union and I made 11 bucks an hour, which was a shit ton of money for a 16 year old. And I was able to buy my first pair of Varnays and my first real pair, not knockoffs of top, Sperry Topsiders. So Varnay and Topsiders. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Scott Galloway, and this is a good one. Scott's been a colleague of mine for many years. We do a program together where we train CMOs at the Festival of Cannes every year. So some background on Scott. He's a professor at NYU. He's an author. He's a big tech gadfly. He's a TV personality. He's an entrepreneur. He has started three companies and sold them. He's written two best-selling books. One is called The Big Four, and the second one is called The Algebra of Happiness, and it's launching as we speak. What I love today about the conversation with Scott is it was different. He's not a CMO, but he counsels a lot of CMOs, and he's one of the smartest person I've ever met in all of my life in business and branding. And what's different about today is he shares the concept of how branding is, in a way, dead. The era of branding is over. And there's another era that we're entering into, and we get into that in some detail. He also talks an awful about a lot about happiness, what he's learned about happiness. And he talks about kind of when he's at his happiest and when he sees leaders at their happiest. And he talks a lot about what CMOs should be doing. Here's my conversation with Scott. So, Scott Galloway, I am so looking forward to our chat today. I left Procter & Gamble 10 years ago, almost to the day. And you were, you don't know this, but you were a role model for what I wanted to do in my post-PNG life. Erectile dysfunction and watch a lot of Netflix? (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe. I have done that, that, actually. How's that for kicking off a podcast on CMOs? How's that? (laughs) That's good. It's a good start. Did the the CMO of JP Morgan kick off that way? Be honest, Jim. Uh, She was was cool, but no, it was a bit different. It's a bit different. Yeah. So I'm a role. So listen, model. I'm a role. Listen, model for no, you, 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 you hate, you hate this. I know, but, but I love your life, right? This whole, this whole portfolio. You're an author, a teacher, an entrepreneur, a writer, and I just want, and 
and I visited a whole bunch of people who had lifestyles that I admired. And I, I admired you a bit from a distance. I didn't get to meet you until later. But I want you to share with me and us today what you love about your life and what drives you nuts. Sure. So uh, incredibly blessed. Um, and it's easy to credit your character and your grip, your blessings or your, you know, the good things that happened to you. And then blame your failures. I, I have no such delusions. I'm here talking to you and get to provide economic security for me and my family, which is primarily the reason I work. And unlike what I first started doing uh, when I was an investment banker out of UCLA, I really do enjoy what I do. And, uh, I feel relevant. I have a nice time doing it. I make a good living. So yeah, I'm, I'm really blessed. And it's because of the generosity and vision of California taxpayers and the, and, and the regents of UC. It was education that changed my life. Uh, so you know, I like what I do a lot. And thanks, thanks for saying that. That's a nice compliment. But the only thing that in my life that isn't perfect, uh, that, does, you know, quote unquote, drives me crazy is planes, trains, and automobiles. The nature of what we do, Jim, is yep. we have to go to other you know, other offices and other people. And I just spend a lot of time, you know, getting molested by a guy named Rob from TSA. And it just, it just takes the security at airports, the, the air in a tube, the crappy food on the road. Travel is the only thing in my life uh, that isn't, you know, that isn't, isn't, isn't fantastic. I don't, I, you know, when you're young, you love business travel. As you get older, it just becomes, it becomes difficult. So, I try to stay focused on the 99% that's wonderful. Yep. Well, I'm a big Delta traveler. I'm yes. sure you are as well. And we're going to have the Delta CMO on this podcast at some point. So I'm kind of a Delta fan. Of all the uh, travel companies and airlines, I think they try the hardest. I think Delta does a great job. And I, I, I don't know if this is, I don't know if they pay you. So I don't know if this is working out really well for you. But I think Delta has the best product in the market. Um, they yep. do, uh, you look, the best product in the market are the Gulf Airlines that are subsidized by their local governments. It's sort of like flying Amazon. You're getting, you're getting a dollar, you know, a dollar and five worth of product for a buck. But in terms of for-profit airlines domestically, which they all have to operate under, Delta has the best has the best product. Listen, you talked about your education a minute ago, UCLA. My wife is a proud Bruin, and my daughter is a double Bruin, and it got them off to a great start. I want you to talk a little bit about why UCLA was so special to you, and then I want you to talk a little bit about um, this move to hire people without college degrees. Google said that, Apple, IBM, and I think a degree is still important for a lot of reasons. I'd like you to wax a bit on that. Sure. So I, this is a passion project for mine. Public education changed my life. And uh, I got into UCLA uh, last minute. I was set to pursue a career of installing shelving. My father got me a job uh, installing shelving for 18 bucks an hour, which seemed like a lot of money at the time. And uh, I couldn't go to college unless I was going to be able to go to UCLA because my mother uh, lived behind the school and I was going to get to um, live at home. We didn't have a lot of money. I was raised by a single mother who lived and died a secretary, so that my household income was never above kind of thirty-eight, thirty-five thousand dollars. So it was either UCLA or, or shel you know, shelving. And nothing wrong with manual labor, um, but they called me. I, I went through something called. I got rejected initially, and I went through something called an appeal process. And I remember the day that I got a call from the, a person in the admissions office saying, look, you're a native son of California and we want to do right by you. And they let me into UCLA with what was a very mediocre GPA. And also I was one of those kids that 
didn't have great grades, but didn't test well either. I had really mediocre SATs. And it changed my life. I, I got, I was able to get a job at Morgan Stanley and then with the credibility of Morgan Stanley, I was able to get into business school and with the credibility and contacts of business school, I was able to start my first company, Profit Brand Strategy, which we grew to, I think it's about four or 500 people now, sold that to Dentsu and started this kind of upward march uh, professionally. And it was because of the blessing of, of you know, state-sponsored education. So for me, it was just just life-changing, full stop. And the thing that worries me is that, you know, we seem to have fallen out of love with the unremarkables. I describe myself as, uh, especially as a young man, as remarkably unremarkable. And I think that the University of California's mission has always been to help create remarkable futures for unremarkable people. And I feel as if education, including my university, NYU, has fallen out of love with the unremarkables. And we haven't increased our our first year seats fast enough to increase to catch up with demand. And as a result, we're drunk on exclusivity. Every year we brag about how impossible it is to get into uh, our university. And that's like a homeless shelter bragging that they're turning away more and more people. We've kind of lost the script, Jim. I think as academics and as universities, we no longer think of ourselves as public servants, but as luxury goods. And I would argue that the University of California has not lost the script. What about the companies that are saying that a college degree is no longer required to be hired? Well, okay, if you're Google, and, and so a lot of parents come up to me and say, my kid's thinking about not going to college or didn't like his freshman year and is thinking about dropping out. And they kind of will say, well, maybe he or she is the next Steve Jobs. And I would say, no, he or she isn't. And, and it's, it, it's generally, generally you should assume you are not that person. There are some people who don't need college, who go on, who are so talented, so hardworking, get into the ecosystem of the information economy. And I just think in general, you should assume that you and your children are not, are not those people. Uh, if you look at the amount of money, the incremental delta and in income and opportunities you're afforded with, a, with an education, it's just a really good plan B. And I worry that there's a small group of people that are so remarkably successful without a college degree, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or Jay-Z or you know, uh, or Kim Kardashian, that we begin to believe that this is the, where the economy is headed. I do not think this is where the economy is headed. As a matter of fact, I think it's headed the other way and that it's becoming more and more important that if you don't at least have a college degree, you have some kind of certification, whether it's a esthetician's license, a class three driver's license, a scuba certification, I don't know, whatever it might be, but we're in an economy where if you can't put it on LinkedIn and separate yourself from the other seven and a half billion people in the world, you should assume to make on average what they make, which is not a lot. So I think certification in a college degree is absolutely still the way to go. So Scott, this is the CMO podcast and you're the first non-CMO as a guest. Okay. So, but, but you work with a lot of CMOs, you've started companies that have helped CMOs. So I'd like to get your take today on the CMO, the role, the people, what are they doing right? What are they screwing up? anyone you admire. So I'd like you to shift gears a little bit into the life of a CMO. Sure. So being a CMO now is kind of like being kind of second lieutenant or whatever they call it, riding point in Vietnam and that your life expectancy isn't that high. It, I think the life expectancy for CMOs is 18 to 24 months. So it's a, it's a little higher now, but not much. It's not, it's not, it's not quite four years. I think it's about three and a half. Oh, so it's gone up dramatically. Yeah, okay. but that's still half. Of, it's still half of what the tenure of a CEO is. Yeah, so it still lags. There are their their peers in the C suite. Yeah, look, it, it it depends on the firm. 
but I think immediately you have to identify the role and get, get the requisite authority because whenever you're in a, in a, in a role that doesn't have a P&L where you're mostly just an expense, you're kind of vulnerable. And unless you establish value add pretty quickly, uh, you know, every, everything's fine, everything's fine. And then they wake up in the first bad quarter and they say, well, what do we cut? And as you know, Jim, marketing is usually sort of the easiest thing to cut and probably the most dangerous thing to cut in a downturn. Sometimes the CMO role is people all of a sudden discover marketing, but haven't discovered the cost and the requisite investment around marketing. And they create this thing called CMO. And then they, again, two, three years later, this person doesn't have any have any achievements because they haven't been provided the artillery. A lot of times the CMO doesn't have the, the authority to tell brands how to behave. So as a result, they're kind of begging the company to, to do things and it doesn't work out. I think it's a very, I think CMO is arguably mm -hmm. one of the most difficult positions or roles in the company. I mean, and you, you speak to more CMOs than I do. Would you agree with that? Where do I get that wrong, Jim? No, I think, I think, for, no, I think you're spot on. I think versus other uh, functions in the C-suite, it's the role, it's the function that has the most uh, disparity between companies. If you go, if you go to, I don't know, 20 companies, you look at the CFO role, the HR role, the head of R&D, the CEO role, you know, they're relatively the same. But if you do the same with marketing, it's all over the map, which I think is a big issue. And, and one of the first things I ask a CMO if they ask me for help is, what do you work on? You know, how do you spend your time? What's your core work? And, and I, you know, when I became CMO of P&G, I did an audit of what our people were doing with their time, and I got a, a good sample. And it was mostly packaging changes and organizing meetings. And, you know, a great marketing company doesn't, that's not their core work. So I think it comes down to, you know, the biggest indication of what's valued is where we spend our time. And I think that's too all over the map, and it's not as, much fo it's not as focused on customer delight and growth and organization building and transformation as it needs to be. CMO is very amorphous, which is very dangerous unless up front you're in, you know, you're in real kind of lockstep around what the CEO is expecting of you, what your metrics are, and, and as we said, the requisite resources. So why do you think that is, Scott? I mean, you teach at a university. I mean, there's, I don't know how many universities have marketing as a, uh, as a discipline a lot. There's thousands of books about this. We've been at marketing for hundreds of years. Why is the definition of it so widely varied, industry to industry, company to company? Well, you you could argue, and I'm going to get uh, academic here. So I would argue that the the algorithm for um, they created more shareholder value or stakeholder value from the end of World War II to the introduction of Google was what I refer to as the brand era, and that is. The way to print money and create billions of sh shareholder value was large, loosely speaking, to take a mediocre product, a mediocre shoe, a mediocre car, a mediocre sugary drink, come up with these amazing brand codes of European elegance or masculinity or, uh, you know, a, the a vision of paternal behavior from America or youth or sex appeal. And then use this incredibly efficient and cheap. We didn't realize how cheap it was till the last 20 years vehicle called broadcast media to pound away at those associations and then stuff the channel and hope the channel didn't screw up that brand equity too much and then sell these products at 70, 80, 90 points of gross margin and turn 30 cents of solvent into uh, $3 of European elegance or hand wash to turn 30 cents 
of a peanut butter paste into maternal love because choosy moms choose Jif and sell it for three bucks. This was just the license to print money. And now the, with the introduction of Google and all these other weapons of kind of mass diligence, you no longer need to defer as readily to the brand. And you can find the right peanut butter from Costco that costs a lot less. You can find the hotel that is in the Four Seasons or the Ritz-Carlton and you don't need to defer to the brand because you have TripAdvisor. So as a result, I think we've left the brand era or the sun has passed midday on brand era. And we're in what I would call, unfortunately, the monopoly era. era. Some people would call it the semiconductor area or the microchip or silicon era. But in general, I think the way that companies have created massive shareholder value over the last 20 years is to have a 10x better product, establish themselves as the leader, raise so much more capital than everyone else that they're able to make these incredible, uh, erect these incredible moats of, uh, of human capital, capital spending, lower prices, whatever it might be, IP, lobbying in Washington, or all of the above. And then they print money. And unfortunately, that era involves much bigger spoils for a much fewer number of players. And the the, the reflex memory is around brand or traditional brand building. And the curriculum at NYU Stern, the marketing department there, and the marketing department, I would argue, at most of the top 20 business schools, we have a curriculum that primarily trains somebody to go get a job at craft and be laid off two years later. The, the kind of general skill set of brand building, it's, it's not that it's gone away. It's just that there's fewer jobs. And more, every day, more money is taken out of kind of traditional brand bidding, building activities and, and put into what are more kind of um, processing power or, or you know, algorithmically driven decision making around discovery, execution, e-commerce, et cetera. So brand building, you would argue, is either going away or it's evolved dramatically in terms of what it's building. But we still have this reflex memory, or at least guys like me and my generation are like, brand is everything. And what we mean by that is brand codes and advertising. And that that era has kind of just, you know, Don Draper is not only dead, he's been drawn and quartered and hung in the public square. I, When I first came out of business school, I got very lucky with profit with a brand strategy firm and people wanted a young guy in the room and I shaved my head. So everybody thought I understood technology and was smarter than I am. And I would get him big glasses too. Yeah. Big glasses, big glasses, uh, you know, the part, the role. And I would get invited to board me. I got invited to sit and uh, board meetings at Levi Strauss and company at like the age of 29. And when I went into these board meetings, there'd be guys like Nigel Bogle or Lee Clow. Other, uh, ad guys were always in the boardroom. They were the, they were the, the, CEO whisperers, they were the, you know, Lee Cloud was advising Steve Jobs. You know, it was this, the brand guys were had a seat at the table. I, Jim, I can't tell you the last time I saw an ad guy in a boardroom. They're just not there. No, no so, they haven't been for years. So the traditional, you know, generously you'd say brand building has changed. But the reality is the era of brand, I would argue, is kind of coming to a close. It's transitioned to something else. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. 
Get started today at webflow.com. Scott, you come to my, you know, I teach an academy at the Cannes Festival every year for CMOs. This year we have 50 plus coming and Scott, you're speaking to them again. And you've been so kind to come the last several years and talk about tech and the breakup and the big four and, and what you would do if you were the CMO of a quote traditional company. So what are you going to tell the CMOs this year when you come to Cannes and talk to these 50 CMOs? You going to say what you just said or something else? So I think every CEO and CMO, kind of my big thing, I try and pick a, a one theme every year. And my big theme this year is that I believe the world is distilling down to a small number of kind of what I refer to as rundles. And that's, a, that's an acronym for recurring revenue bundle. So the most obvious one is Prime. You get a lot of great things from Prime. And you decide, I don't use all of them, but it's such an incredible offer. I'll pay 119 bucks a year. Netflix is a recurring revenue bundle. If you you and I fly Delta, Sky Team is a recurring, you know, to a certain extent, mm-hmm. it's not recurring revenue, but it's a bundle of air. I'll fly Air France to Paris next week, even though I don't love the airline because I've gone all in on this kind of monogamous relationship with a group of brands all strung together through Sky Team. And I think the world is distilling, as it did in the airline industry, down to a small number of networks. I think the brand world is going to distill down, or the consumer world is going to distill down to a small number of networks. And the reason why is that we have mistaken choice for a good thing. And I like Sheena Iyengar, the professor of marketing at Columbia, says that it's not that we want more choice. We want fewer choices. We just want to be more confident in the choices we make. So I think where we're, what we're going to see is a small number of brands kind of become the helm of the bobsled and either acquire and or strike relationships with other brands to create a recurring revenue offering that uses artificial and organic intelligence, charges you a yearly fee, and kind of takes your entire consumer purchases in that sector off the table. So for example, I think Nike could be that lead dog, if you will, in the fitness space. And then if they came up with a bundle that said, Scott, you're an aging athlete. We know you're you know, trying to barely hold on with your fingernails to your last vestiges of youth. So we're going to, you're going to pay us a thousand, two thousand, five thousand bucks a year. We automatically ship you your Vaporfly shoes. We have ingredient branded hotels that have better gyms, better food, such that you don't have to eat this kind of I don't know, delayed onset diabetes that I eat when I'm on the food, the menus and room service are just so awful. Uh, and we're going to take your fitness and your health kind of off the table. And we even have a, a set of pre-approved orthopedic surgeons, orthopedic surgeons. So when you get your knee operated on, cause you won't stop running, we have a, a group of Nike affiliated people, fitness programs. We have a deal with Lululemon because we know you like their workout clothes better than ours, whatever it might be. The marketplace loves monogamy, and if a company can show that the fastest growing part of its company is a recurring revenue part of its company, it moves into a different weight class from a shareholder standpoint because companies with recurring revenue businesses are valued at a multiple of revenues, and companies with transactional businesses like like a P&G or a, uh, a Target that have to constantly reinvent the business every day and still stay hot and still flirt with their customers over and over and over and aren't in a monogamous relationship but a transactional relationship, they're valued at a multiple of EBITDA. So if you're a company, and most of the companies I work with are going to grow sort of four to six percent a year. I think I work with a lot of the same companies you work with. And those 50 CMOs that'll be in that room will be in, you know, largely work for companies that at least organic growth is going to kind of be low single digits. 
And so if they're going to grow the revenues 20 to 30% organically over the next five years, but they have to say to the investment markets, there's a reasonable chance we're going to double shareholder value because Netflix and Microsoft can make a very compelling case. They will double their shareholder value over the next five years. The only way they're going to achieve that is to move to the better model of Microsoft. And that is Microsoft has the ultimate monogamous relationship with the corporate world in the form of Microsoft Office. And nobody divorces Microsoft. If people occasionally flirt with G Suite or something like that, but for the most part, they continue to pay that money to Microsoft so they can have Word and Excel, et cetera. The divorce rate is almost non-existent with Prime. The only time people cancel Prime is when they move in with someone else or their credit card does, you know, expires. Netflix is an unbelievable model. And if you look at the companies adding a ton of shareholder value, Jim, they've gotten this recurring revenue bundle. So long way, way, long-winded way of saying, I think every CMO needs to figure out a strategy such that he or she can oversee the programming, the content, and the execution of a component or a bundling or a service component of the business that becomes the fastest growing part of the business. Even if it's off a small base, that's okay. But we're all headed to haves and have-nots. And the haves in the corporate world from a shareholder standpoint are going to be the ones that convince consumers to enter into this recurring revenue relationship with them. So Scott, if you're the CMO of of Unilever, AB InBev, Kraft Heinz, um, any of them that have a large brand, Johnson & Johnson, how would you get started? What's your pragmatic advice in getting started to build some sort of end-to-end recurring revenue you know, system based on, I mean, consumer habits, right? Travel, athletics, food and beverage, uh, at different aspects of your life. If you can take that over for them and build it into a recurring revenue model, it's very powerful. How, would you, how do you get started? Yeah, home care, baby. There's a ton of you know segments as you think about it. So, you and you and I know these people. Um, and by the way, you put together the best room of CMOs in the world at Can. I think it's always an incredibly impressive uh, group of people. So, first off, uh, you have to have what I'd call a man in the mirror test or a woman in the mirror test, and realize that even if you're ABM bad, even if you're PNG, you probably don't have the portfolio to pull this off on your own. You you can in certain niches, but if you wanted to do a grand bargain with a consumer. Say you're PNG, and I think it'd be realistic for PNG to say, you know what? We just want to take your home care, your your your. I don't know what you call this segment uh, and and laundry. What's that called? Clothing care, apparel, fabric, Fab- uh, all fabric of that. Care. Maybe even your personal hygiene, or whatever it might be. We're just going to take this whole home bundle off the table. And if we don't have the brand you love, we have the number two brand, and we're going to give you a fantastic deal because we recognize. We're, we're fulfilling stuff automatically, so we'll save some costs on marketing. The marketplace loves these recurring revenues. We're just going to give you unbelievable deal in terms of new products, new discovery, and the price we charge you every month and fulfillment options. And I think the first thing you got to realize is there's very few companies that could pull this off on their own. And that is one of the key things that gets in the way of strategy, I find, with CPG companies is they may mistake their competitors for their enemies. P&G and Unilever are not enemies, they're competitors. Their enemy is in Seattle. Nike and Adidas are competitors, they're not enemies, their enemy is in Seattle. I think every company faces an existential threat from Amazon. I think Jeff Bezos is the white knight, he is coming for the living, nobody is safe. And I think you're going to see a series of strange bedfellows where when the, the panzer tanks rolled into Slovakia and Poland, the British, the Russians, and the Germans figured out a way to get along. I mean, the British and the Russians hated each other a lot more than PNG and Unilever. But what I'm trying to tell people is the Panzer tanks are here. PNG is coming for your lunch. 
they see your margin is their opportunity and they've partnered with 80% of US wealthy households, two thirds of all households, fanatical investors, amazing technology, and a government that doesn't seem to want to regulate these tech monopolies, even though they're monopolies, to basically starch the margin from all brands. And if, you, if we don't start seeing this as an existential threat and create uh, allies where we would have never dreamt of before to offer sort of these grand bargain bundles, uh, I don't think it's going to work. So I think P&G needs to be sitting down with Unilever, Samsung, Nike, and saying, what could we do to pull off something just incredible here in terms of some sort of consumer offering and charge a recurring revenue fee? You know, the other is the board has to hold hands around the fire and say, this costs a lot of money. You know, if you look at the recurring revenue bundles that work, there's nothing that romantic there. Netflix spends $12 billion on original content every year. And it's just, so I basically get a billion dollars in original content for every dollar a month I send to Netflix. That's, an, that's the offering you are competing against. So in the short run, and even in the medium run, the, this, this offering is not gonna offer the same unit economics as your traditional channels. I find boards in general love the term innovation, they just don't love the term investment, or the, the two are, do not foot to one another. So one is uh, imagining, uh, being realistic about how strong your brand portfolio is on its own, having pushing the limits of your comfort zone in terms of partnering with other companies, and then having a board and a CEO that demonstrate the leadership to the markets to say, yeah, our stock may go down here, our profits are going to take a hit, but we have to come up with the type of offering and the type of value proposition being offered across other sectors when Netflix has taken TV off the table. I mean, we, millennials will spend more time watching Netflix than the rest of cable television combined. Mm -hmm. Netflix will do more revenue this year than the entire receipts of the entire domestic box office, even with Avengers Endgame and all of that, it still doesn't match the revenue of Netflix. So that is what you're competing against. Otherwise, we're gonna be just picking up the scraps. We're gonna be filling in niches around when someone needs fabric softener or when someone needs lunch or when someone needs, you know, gets excited by the hottest new shirt, which doesn't last forever. We have to move uh, to these kind of what I'll call networks uh, 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 and companies need to be realistic about their brand portfolio and the requisite investment. And Scott, we just talked a few minutes ago about the role of marketing and the work of marketing and what is a CMO's job. I mean, you just described it. Right. And by the way, that's really interesting work. It's really it's it's awesome work. And who wouldn't want to do that in a career? Uh, so anyway, um, the algebra of happiness. You know, I read your book, The Big Four. I recommend it to a lot of people. Uh, it, it was fabulous. And, and a lot of people that I work with still cite it and it's inspired them. So the algebra of happiness is sort of a 180. So can and I haven't read it yet. It's not in the market for a few weeks. I think you told me. Could you tell us a little bit about what that why you did that and why the uh, video you did about this inspired such uh, yeah, So thanks, that's a generous question, Jim. So my process for writing books, and I know you've written uh, books, is that I, I take my most popular class and then I do a video, and if the video resonates, I do a book. And my, most, my second most popular class is a book on the big four platforms, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Did a video, it got 1.1 million views, and my publisher approached me and said, with this kind of resonance on YouTube, you should write a book, wrote a book, did well. And then the book, the book business, and I didn't know this, it was my first book, but if you have a successful book, you're supposed to write a second one immediately because the, the prime is pumped right. or the pump is primed. 
and they know who you are. And Barnes and Noble and Amazon will pre-order a bunch, and the algorithms see that you pre-ordered a bunch, and it's kind of an upward spiral. So it doesn't, you know, they came. My publisher came back to me, Penguin Portfolio Random House, which is, you know, arguably the best business book publisher in the world. Or at least that's what they keep telling me. And they keep, they'll say, "God, you got to. Oh, this is great. You got to get another book out there." And I'm like, well, I don't really have a vision for one. It doesn't matter. Write something called the five, the one, whatever that is. Just get a new book out there. And I came back and I said about six months later, okay, I've written a book and I'm really excited about it. And they're like, great, great. What's it about? I'm like, it's about happiness. And there's a pause. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> write about Amazon, write about Google, write about Tencent, write about Alibaba, but happiness. And they said, we don't publish that kind of book, Scott. That's not what you're known for. And I said, look, I don't, I'm in a position where I'm not writing. Uh, for economic security, it's not my primary gig. I write books because I want my kids to read them when I'm gone and understand me better. And I, you know, I have a modest goal. I want to be the most influential thought leader in the history of business. I'm still not there, but books books can help me get there. And I, uh, my second most pop, my most popular session is the last session I give at, at school, and it's called the Algebra of Happiness. And over the course of 20 years working with successful people, uh, teaching 4,500 students, my own personal observations, having gone through a lot of peaks and valleys professionally and personally, what is the difference between success and happiness? And I've tried to uh, identify and support with research some best practices and distill it down to a series of um, equations around what generally creates an arc of satisfaction. Happiness is a bit of a misnomer because happiness technically is a sensation that you can get from Chipotle or Netflix or, a, you know, a Makers and Ginger. But how do you create certain best practices in your life that result in an arc or a narrative of happiness such that as you get towards the end of your life, you feel as if you could drop the mic or that you had checked a lot of boxes and sort of indelible ink. I take the kids through these equations uh, and the class is very popular. I did the video. The video got over two million views. And so I wrote a book uh, and it comes out in two weeks. So Scott, uh, when are you happiest? What's the equation? Oh, I'm, I'm hands down happiest when my kids uh, um, crawl into bed with me um, in the morning. And both of them on weekends, you know, come in. Uh, we're pack animals. We're generally happiest. Uh, the research shows when we're kind of in motion and surrounded by people we love. So I'm half of that. I'm happiest when I'm surrounded by my boys. And, you know, my, my youngest is, I'm having trouble connecting with my eight-year-old. I talk about that in the book. We, my oldest, my 11-year-old, we connected through soccer and we love the same TV. My eight-year-old and I haven't found that, those things yet. And we have a tough time connecting and he tests me a lot. And I describe him affectionately as the terrorist in our household. It's like we've had an insurgent hole up in our household with us. He's difficult. And, uh, but every morning he comes in tired and he, grabs me, lays on me like uh, he's hugging a tree and then he spills over into the middle of the bed. And, you know, Jim, you just have those feelings where it's like, okay, I'm still a, a blink in the cosmic universe, but my blink matters because, you know, I have this, this kid, this thing that trusts me and loves me completely. And I love it completely. I think the universe wants to prosper. And I've thought a lot about and done a decent amount of research into this notion of love. And there's kind of three types of love. There's the love you get as a young person from the people who provide you unconditional love. There's transactional love, which most young people pursue. They offer love in exchange for something back, intimacy, uh, partnership economically, sex, uh, uh, pleasing their parents or societal norms. And then there's complete love. And complete love is deciding to just be you know, irrationally passionate about someone else's well-being 
regardless of what you get back. And the universe needs those people because it's the key to the, the success of our species. And as a result, it is the most rewarding type of love. And the first time, quite frankly, I don't, I don't have the confidence or the emotional security to have reached that with anyone else other than my boys. And so I find time with my boys is, is in fact, the most rewarding thing uh, for me. So, Scott, let's stay on this happiness thing for a moment. Um, let's go back to the CMO theme. How can CMOs in their organizations, what in that book can help them build an organization that is happier, that is more courageous, that is more daring, that has more love? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure it can. I, it's such a hard left. I'm really, I, it, the book for me is a lot about relationships and approach to work. I think there's a few things um, as I'm just trying to think it through it. So look, the, the, there's no silver bullet. Everyone has kind of their own algebra of happiness, but generally the uh, key best practice that's present most often in people's lives who do report a lot of satisfaction is that the largest study on happiness is the Harvard grant study. They tracked 400 men from the age of 19 to kind of 99 when the last one died. And it gives you a sense, it was 1929, it gives you a sense of what society was like is that we chose to track 400 men. It's like women, don't worry about their happiness, but they chose 400 men and tracked them for 80 years. They had to swap out four principal scientists because they kept, they kept dying. And they took this massive data set, looking at everything from what they ate, their physical activity, their jobs, their income, their relationships, everything, and then constantly queried them on how happy and satisfied they felt. And then they had this, the most robust longitudinal data set ever compiled on happiness. And they found that in general, the, the key signal, the strongest signal around happiness was, one, do you feel loved? Uh, 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 do you feel loved and supported at home? And just as importantly, do you know they sense uh, intense love and support from you? And then with your friends, do you, do you sense a, do you have a sense of joy and camaraderie? And do they sense joy and camaraderie from you? And then also at work, do you feel admired and respected and relevant? And also do other people get a sense that you admire and respect and find their, their work relevant? So I think a CMO you know, I used to think culture and HR were just such bullshit when I was a younger man. Uh, and now I've come to realize that one of the few sustainable assets, whether it's an HBO or an Apple, is culture. You know, HBO will spend $2 billion, Netflix will spend $12 billion, Amazon will spend 8 and they can't get anywhere near Game of Thrones, much less Girls, much less Veep. They just can't, they can't seem to find it. And it's because HBO's created this incredible culture. Samsung will spend more on marketing than Apple, but they still can't get near Apple products because Apple's figured out some sort of creative process that it's very hard to reverse engineer. So I think if you can create a culture where people who admire and respect and consistently demonstrate those things for other people in your organization, and you set up the vehicles for camaraderie, one of the things I hated about being acquired is they canceled this thing we call Champagne Friday. The number one the number one source of retention for people at work is if they have a friend, if they have a good friend at work. And so giving people the ability to make friendships at work, and I'm not talking about wild parties or kind of this frat bro culture that's, that's emerged at some of these tech companies, but I think if you can create a culture of camaraderie and where people appreciate each other and can make connections and become good friends, a lot of, a lot of iconic companies in the 50s and 60s started softball leagues. And I think that stuff is really powerful. Right. So I would think of it as CMO is obviously usually an outward facing company or an outward facing role. But, you know, the happiness stuff, 
I think I think your relationship with your peers at work is a key component of uh, of happiness. We did a many many year longitudinal study at P and G about the leaders who were effective in the long term and who became the leaders of the company, and of all of the attributes we looked at, the one that was present in nearly all of them was the relationship with their first boss. It's just, you know, whether it was where they went to school, what their work experience was like, what the aptitude tests were, what the career path was, we could not find any relationship. The only dominant relationship was how strong the relationship was when they came to the company with their first boss. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things, you know, you strike me as someone to be a good manager, or you must have been a good manager to rise to that position at P&G, but when I first started my business, I thought that just being a good manager, being, being generally just awesome and being a good person. Like if I'm great at what I do and I'm a good person, that makes me a good manager. And what you realize as you get older, you know, setting, setting expectations, constant feedback, developing a sense of empathy where you say, look, you may not be like, I assumed everyone was like me. I assumed everyone just generally wanted to be awesome and make a shit ton of money. And I assumed the whole world was like that. And then as you get older, you realize, well, some people have different priorities at work and trying to create a sense of empathy where you really spend time with your direct reports and saying, hey, I, I'm going to I may not entirely get you, but I'm going to try hard and then I'm going to try and deliver yeah. against yep. those things for you. So you always feel like I'm in your corner. I think loyalty is a function of appreciation and the way you demonstrate appreciation is you take time to say, I'm going to try and figure you out and really understand what you want and trying to help you get there or what's important to you. And I'm also going to provide you with constant feedback. I, I encourage all of my managers to good, bad, you notice anything good any, and in any opportunity or something someone's not doing well, grab them for 20 seconds, pull them into a conference room and say, don't stop doing this. That was great. Keep doing this. Or pull them in and say, you, you might want to think about improving or modifying around this kind of thing. And you know, as, uh, when I first got it, the only real job I've ever had is I worked at Morgan Stanley and our feedback was once a year in the form of a bonus check. That was it. And I remember walking into my review at Morgan Stanley and thinking, I don't know if I'm going to get a 100% bonus or get fired, which means they were just shitty managers. I had no loyalty to yeah. the organization. I had some loyalty to my first boss. It's interesting what you said. He was, he was, you know, he kind of took a, he was sort of a, uh, you know, took on a paternal or a big brother role for me. So I was very loyal to him because I thought he was going to kind of protect me, if you will. But other than that, it just, it was just a terrible culture. Anyways, yeah, well, it's been a while now. It's been a while. So Scott, I want to wrap up with All sort right. of a lightning round. And, and the first one is any book you're reading now? I'm embarrassed to say it. I don't read a lot of books. Okay. I read a ton, but I don't read a ton of books. I think like the, the best book I've read of the last few years, I think every business person uh, or just everyone should read is uh, Sapiens. I just I, I, I'm going back and I'm trying to read it again because I just I felt like it was so interesting and important. And I'm if I had a my next life, I'm coming back as an evolutionary anthropologist. I just find that stuff fascinating. And if you want to be a CMO, you want to be a great marketer. I think you need to understand biology. We're all animals and any great brand, any great business taps into some sort of instinct. Yeah. It's on my shelf, by the way. I'm reading Bad Blood now, but that's next up. So what do you, any, what, what series are you watching? You're looking forward to Stranger Things or is there something else you're watching now that's really great? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with Game of Thrones. I just, I think this thing is so inspiring that somebody took this book and managed to get 
episodes done at 15 million bucks, whoever is the producer who greenlighted this thing should be giving them, given the medal of freedom. Cause if someone had said, okay, we're going to have these battles in Iceland and then we're going to have dragons. It could have been so expensive, but so bad at the same time if they hadn't pulled it off. And this thing is just, I think television is the defining art form of our age. If you look back in a hundred years, I don't think they're going to look at impressionist art, modern art. I think they're going to say television was the defining art form. And a lot of it's just resources. You know, Netflix will spend more money on original scripted television than all of the networks, all of the cable companies combined just 10 years ago. So we have just so many, you know, you want the key to happiness? Watch more television. <laughs> There's just amazing TV out there right now. Yeah. So anyways, Game of Thrones for me, and I'm, I'm a huge, I watch a ton of series. Uh, uh, you know, I love Veep. Uh, I think if you want to know somebody, look at their Netflix home screen. What are you watching, Jim? Patriot. I just finished Patriot. I loved it. Yeah. Oh, it's it's so dark. It's so quirky. It's it's fantastic. Fantastic. And I'm 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 a Stranger Things addict too. I'll just stream that the minute it comes out on July fourth. Yeah, that's nice. So, any podcast you're listening to now? Uh, I really like the Daily from the New York Times. I think it does yep. a, just a fantastic job. I'm doing a podcast. I do a podcast with Kara Swisher called Pivot, and it's been a real learning experience for me. I was on her podcast, and I had never listened to one before I was a guest, and then we started co-hosting one. I find the medium fascinating. It's one of the few ad-supported mediums that's growing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting if when you, you know the medium is the message. When people come up to me and they've seen my videos, it's kind of a tech bro, and they high-five me like, way to go, man, or peace, or whatever, or, or respect, right? When I do my blog, No Mercy, No Malice, and I write about my family, I get long, thoughtful responses from parents and CMOs who want, who are like, who, who respect the work and they put in some work into their response. And when you meet somebody who likes your podcast, they feel as if they're your friend. They feel as if they know you. And there's yeah. something about being in the ear of somebody and audio where they come up to you and it's as if you've met three or four times. It's really nice. And they're, and they, they're your friend. So it's, I'm enjoying the podcasting thing a lot. I listen to the daily. I listen to a bu- I, I listen to a bunch of ones that are successful because I want to understand what drives success in podcasting. Because I don't, I, you know, I just it's I think it's an it's super interesting medium. Um, it's something you know I think both you and I want to uh, get really good at, right? Oh, we're working on it. Let's flip the mic here, and then I know you got to cut me loose. What's going on with Jim Stangle? I know that you have this great partnership work and personal partnership with your wife? How are your kids? What's, what's, go, what's important for Jim Stangle right now? Scott, actually, a lot of the same things you talked about, and I'm not just saying that to be patronizing. I mean, my wife and I are married 36 years. She had a birthday this week. She came to New York with me. We just love hanging out together. Uh, there's nothing I love more than being with her. That's nice. It's, uh, and it's so basic and so hard. To achieve, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, the 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 most important decision you'll make, and I ask my kids this, and it's in the book. I ask the kids, "What's the most important decision you make?" Them that they say the industry you choose, or you know your approach to life. And also, like by far, the most important decision you'll make is who you partner with in life, and that is who you marry. And it's got such downside if you make the wrong decision, and it's got such upside if you make the right decision. You know who also said that to me, Scott? I, I went to a cocktail party a couple of years ago, and no one was there except Warren Buffett. 
Hmm. So I was in, I was in a room alone with him, and I said, "Hey, I'm never going to do this again. What can I learn from you?" I introduced myself. The first thing he said was almost verbatim what you said: "The most important choice in life, and I tell this to all my young people, is who they spend it with. Nothing else is close. Not what you, how much money you make. No, not what industry you're in. Not where you live. It's who you spend your life with." Hundred percent, and uh, and uh, yeah, I, I've done, I did a bunch of research around well, how do you pick the right partner and. And it's it, most of the research show it's kind of there's three legs of the school. The first is, and it's the one most people, young people are focused on it's attraction, sex and affection, identify your relationship as singular. That's important. Two is values, religion, uh, you know, the role of your parents in your life, how many kids you want, all that good stuff. But the thing that the third thing that people don't talk about when they're young and they assume it'll just all work out and it's the number one cause of divorce is your approach to money. And that is, what are your expectations around money? Who's going to make it? How much are you going to spend? Who's responsible for the economic well-being? Because most people think that infidelity or not shared values is the number one source of divorce. It isn't. The number one source of divorce is uh, economic agita. So anyways, but kids don't. Kids mostly focus on the first. Uh, yep. You don't think much about the second and the third. Yeah. So, Scott, uh, it's been a blast. One last question. Who else would you like to see on this podcast hosted by me? Who else would you like to hear from? The Night King. Bring on the Night King, Jim. <laughs> we'll work on it. We'll work Bring on it. Bring on the Night King. Winter is winter is here. All oh right, Scott. Gosh. You went from game Thank of the Jim. Anyone. All right. Okay. All right. Very good. Thanks, Scott. Loved it. Enjoyed right, it. Jim. Thanks for doing this. Take care. That was my conversation with Scott. What I loved most was how tender he was about when he's happiest and those times are when he's snuggling with his kids on weekends and if you know Scott you know you think he's a bit gruff and a bit short but actually beyond that surface he's a sweet loving dad that's it for this episode of the CMO podcast if you found this helpful and entertaining I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends and I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes and if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.